What's up, everybody? You're listening to the Disciple Makers Podcast by Discipleship.org, and this is your host, Dave Stovall. I'm happy to say that on this episode, we've got the Sean McDowell. You may have heard of him from the Think Biblically Podcast, which is a fantastic podcast, by the way. He's talking with our point leader, Bobby Harrington, about the importance of defining and understanding core beliefs and values in the practice of discipleship. They highlight the importance of modeling these beliefs, building intimate relationships, and having meaningful spiritual conversations. I really appreciate Sean sharing later on in the episode after the break, one of those conversations between him and his son after going to watch a movie together. It's a great example of just practical discipleship that you can do with your family. It's a fantastic episode, so be ready to take notes if you're not driving. Let's jump in and hear this awesome conversation between Bobby Harrington and Sean McDowell. Enjoy. Hi, everybody. I'm Bobby Harrington, and I feel so privileged today to have Sean McDowell with me. And we are in a series where we are looking at disciple-making culture, and we're going to start off at the root of a culture. In other words, we want to understand uh, what, how, how do beliefs and convictions, how are they formed, and why are they the root of our behaviors? Uh, some of you may know Sean. Uh, his podcast is super popular. I love it myself. Uh, and uh, he's also written many books. And Sean tends to be really effective at helping people to understand belief systems, from a Christian point of view, understanding apologetics. He's really good on cultural issues, on progressive Christianity, but also, on the other hand, beliefs that tend to be too rigid or legalistic and maybe don't fit. And so he does a great job with the nuance of a faithfulness to Scripture and an advocacy for the greatness of Jesus. So, Sean, really glad to have you with us. That was quite the introduction. I appreciate that and honored to be here with you, Bobby. Well, we're, we're grateful to have you here. I want to start off by uh, sharing a diagram that we're sharing a lot that I hope everybody can see on the screen there. And uh, it's on creating a disciple-making culture. And it's a diagram that we did several years ago to try to help church leaders understand culture. Uh, if you've been with us, you know how important culture is. Uh, some people say culture eats strategy for breakfast, and other people say, no, culture eats strategy for breakfast, lunch, and supper. So for church leaders who care about uh, disciple-making and about raising up an army of disciples of Jesus, understanding culture, I believe, is the most important long-term strategy. So. When we look at culture, at the heart of culture, and this diagram uh, points it out, are values and core beliefs. So these are things uh, that we truly believe and what truly matters to us. And in a sense, they're the most important thing. Now, the second part of that, or the second layer, uh, are going to be behaviors. In other words, given our values and beliefs, how are we going to behave? Now, let me say something. A value is a value, and a belief is only a belief in as far as you act on it. We're not talking about aspirational values or things we want to believe. We're talking about what we actually believe. Uh, it's like Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey me. 
So Jesus kind of tied it in together as well. So uh, the second layer, which we're not going to get at today, but other conversations have focused on it, uh, that discipline creates habits, habits form lifestyles, lifestyles reflect behavior. And then we have a narrative about it. It's how we talk about ourselves, how we talk about what we believe, our language descriptions and sayings, and the stories we tell. So, Sean, before we go further, let me just get your reaction to this concept of beliefs are at the root of culture. Well, I think you're right that at the core of ultimately how we behave and how we live is what we believe, not what we say we believe, not what we want to believe, but what we actually believe. And the reality is we, we don't always know what we really believe until the rubber meets the road, right? That's when our beliefs really get expressed. Like it's easy for people to say things like, oh, I value truth. I believe in truth. I mean, I ask people and audiences all the time, Bobby, I'll say, how many of you think truth is important? Every hand goes up. And then my question is, I'll say, I don't want your hands to go up, but how many of you are willing to suffer for what mm -hmm. is true? Now, everybody's hands is going to go up, but clearly not as many people whose hands go up will really suffer for truth. When that conflict emerges, that's when we know if somebody really believes something and has formed the character to live out their beliefs. Now, the last thing I'll say about this in terms of reaction is at first, when I glanced at it, I thought you were saying the narrative, kind of what you might say is a worldview, a yeah. story that we see ourselves as being a part of and the story of our lives. I thought you were placing that at the third level, but then I saw how the worldview really surrounds everything and our yeah. beliefs and our ideas are a part of this larger story we see ourselves in. I agree 100% with that. Yeah, yeah, no, that, that's a great uh, way to frame it. And of course, the narrative, the stories, communicating la through language, you know, what to believe is necessary to come to beliefs. So there's, a, there's a, a nuanced interaction between all three parts. Sometimes I don't really believe something until I act on it, and then I believe it at a deeper level. Yet I'm not going to act on it until I believe it at least at a, at a surface level. So, so the, the idea of them working together is really important. Sean, I think that today in our culture, there's a lot of beliefs that are under assault. And I want to just ask you, what have you found in terms of working with in apologetics or cultural apologetics? What have you found to be some really important things for church leaders to be aware of uh, on the one hand, from the culture, which is, has a different worldview and is assaulting Christian beliefs, and then on the other hand, for church leaders, how, how vital it is that they actually shore up beliefs and help build them mm. in the disciples in the churches. Yeah, this is a really important question. There's a difference between how we engage our culture that is sometimes hostile to core Christian beliefs and how we disciple and pass on the faith to those within the church, so to speak. These are different questions that overlap. In terms of those inside the church, one of the first things we have to do is just give room for questions and give room for doubt. Sometimes we do not create a culture in which questions are invited. 
And I think there can be different reasons for this, Bobby. I think sometimes we don't invite questions because many of us haven't taken the time to figure out what we really believe and why. So questions can be threatening to us. I think many of us have bad theology and have bought things like, well, it's all about experience. It's about feelings. Uh, it's about faith, not things we can actually know. So as a result, we don't invite questions. Or some of us have just grown up in a church. We've never really seen this modeled well. Well, we always should be a church that has invited questions, but especially today with these little rectangle things in our pockets called smartphones, <laughs> is this generation has more just other worldviews and ideas streaming to them all the time, whether it's through Netflix or whether it's through YouTube or whether it's through TikTok. They are constantly being barded being bombarded with ideas and worldviews different from Christianity. So if we don't invite questions, then young people are going to kind of think either one of two things. Either we're afraid of questions and we can't answer this, or they're just going to think, well, maybe Christianity has nothing to do with these big issues and these big challenges. And then we kind of become insular and don't live out a confident faith. So whenever I talk to a lot of young people who have deconstructed many to the point of leaving the faith. They'll say things like, I was never given space. I was never invited to ask questions and learn to think about my faith. And it just ate me away. Mm -hmm. So there's many things we need to do better. But one huge thing is to just invite questions. And by the way, last thing I'll say on this is the reason Christianity shouldn't be threatened by this. Are you ready? This is radical. And I know you agree. All right, with I'm ready. Bobby. It's because Christianity is actually true. Uh, it actually describes the world as it is. It is the true narrative. So we don't have answers to every question, but Jesus said, love God with your mind. In Isaiah, God says, come let us reason together. So for beliefs, and I know you've heard me say this, and this isn't original to me, but it's not doubt that hijacks a kid's faith. It's unexpressed doubt when they're not given the freedom and invited to ask questions and find answers and even continue to follow God amidst questions. That's really step number one. I'd love to see churches do more and more. Oh, that's great. Sean, I want to share a passage with you that we talked about earlier, and I think we both are really convinced of the priority of this passage. It's from 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5. Let me just read it. Paul, writing to the Corinthians, says, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. So he's talking about spiritual warfare here. He says, On the contrary, they, we would mean by that, the weapons we fight with, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. So a stronghold can be a military term, uh, but it's also a spiritual term. And in other words, there's a place to stand where you've uh, gained ground and you're holding that ground. So they have divine power to demolish strongholds. He says, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And then this last sentence, and we take captive every thought to make mm -hmm. it obedient to Christ. Talk to us about this verse. Oh, I love this passage. There's so many things to unpack here. But number one, 
What is Paul saying? He's saying we are in the world. We're not called to completely abandon the world and separate ourselves. Second, he says, we don't wage war as the world does, presumably with weapons and with physical warfare. Rather, we're in a spiritual war, a spiritual battle. So sometimes people say you shouldn't use warfare language at all when you talk about faith. And I'm like, well, if that's the case, Paul clearly didn't get this memo. Souls are at stake and there's a kind of battle that we are in, so to speak. Now, it says rather than fighting with the way of the world, we, there's divine power to demolish strongholds. How do we demolish them? It says with arguments, which is with truth. Now, I think that we, Paul is talking about here is he's saying we Christians in particular leaders, we're in a spiritual warfare. There's strongholds over people that hold them back from experiencing divine power. How do we demolish them? And that's a strong word, wreck, demolish, destroy with arguments and with truth. Now, why with arguments and truth? Because Satan is the father of lies and Jesus is the truth. An interesting thing not mentioned here is he doesn't say we destroy these strongholds with love. Now we are supposed to love, that's all over the scriptures. That's our call, that's the greatest commandment. But we also need truth. It's truth and it's love. And especially this next generation, there are so many countless strongholds that are holding them back from knowing and following and living the truth. We need to replace, take those lies out and replace them with the truth. This is our task as Christian leaders today. Wow. Well, you know, at discipleship.org, we champion Jesus-style disciple-making. And one of the ways we sum that up <clears throat> is to say it's intentional, relational transformation. So when you talk about truth and love, it's actually what we're talking about. It's in the context of a relationship that's grounded in the love of God expressed through us where we help people walk through their beliefs, but we're tenacious for what's true and to help people to understand that. Am I getting, I don't want to impose my stuff on you, but to react to that, Sean. Well, here's what I'd say. There's kind of a Greek way of thinking and there's, uh, and teaching and a Hebrew way of teaching. There's huge value in the Greek way of dissecting ideas, being in a classroom, having conversation. There is value to that. But ultimately, beliefs are passed on not just in a classroom, but in life. When yes. we're living these things out. This yeah. is in part why Paul is like, follow me as I follow Christ. So if we want to teach this generation, I mean, so let me take a step back. You're right to put beliefs at the core of what really drives and what motivates us. But beliefs aren't something we just simply choose to have overnight. They're things that are inculcated within us and they become a part of us. And you made a reference earlier about kind of shallow beliefs and stronger beliefs. There are things we can improve and increase over time. So if you ask me if I believe something, I said, I'm 51% you know, confident. I believe it, but that is as weak of a belief as one can have. How do I take that to 55, to 60? to 75, to 90, as close to 100 as I can humanly get, that is often best done through relationship. When you're with somebody who believes this, when you're with somebody 
who lives this out. When you're with yes. somebody who models it for you, yes. then it really takes root. So a lot of my Christian worldview, I mean, I've gone through college, two masters and a PhD. All that training was valuable. But the time I saw my dad personally evangelize, the time I spent with my teachers out of the classroom, seeing them with their families, that was far more valuable and added on to the teaching itself. That's where I think discipleship really takes place. And that's a Jesus kind of discipleship. Yeah, that's so good and so important today. Well, Sean, I want to ask you, just as we were looking at the idea of these values that Paul talks about, some secular people have described organizational values. And I wanted to just talk to you about this. And uh, here's where I'd like to go. I'd like to for us to think through how do we create really strong beliefs and values that are resistant to the culture in the context of discipling relationships so that people are willing to change their behaviors and their lifestyle and to share that with others. So Sarah uh, uh, Sutler Cohen says, core values are the root beliefs that a person or organization operates from. Patrick Lencioni, the management guru said, core values are the deeply ingrained principles that guide all of a company's actions, or I would say a church's actions, they serve as its cultural cornerstones. Mm. So if culture is so important, again, we're talking about the cornerstones. And then Collins and Horace, core values are inherent and sacrosanct. I think here they're talking about the idealized state of values. Core values are inherent and sacrosanct. They can never be compromised either for convenience or short-term economic gain or, or other gain. What I'm getting at by pointing these definitions out is that when a church desires to have a disciple-making culture, beliefs have to become so strong that you could say of them that they're not willing to compromise them for convenience or short-term gain. If you could react to this, Sean. Yeah, I, those quotes are powerful. I, I would draw a couple differences between an organization can change its core values and just become a different organization. Obviously, the church can't change yeah. its values, right? That's one difference. Second is there's, you know, if somebody's going to work for a company, they are kind of all in getting a salary from them and they've committed to the company's values going in. Sometimes what makes this hard for a church is we make it as easy as possible for somebody to show up without really having to be all in. And then they can just switch to another church overnight if they want to and not really have to buy into those core values. That's one of the deep challenges of all churches to do this effectively today. The last difference I would say is companies can come up with these core values based on their history, based on their product. Ultimately, it could be a human value, but our values come from scripture. These are not uh, things that we can compromise and we can change. Now, our strategies can change, but our core values about loving God, loving people, discipleship, these are rooted in the example and the teachings of scripture, and we don't have the freedom to change them. So I think the best thing that churches can do is really from the top down model to people what it means to live out these core values 
and give them practical tools to do so. I mean, my dad said to me uh, years ago, he said, don't practice what you preach. Preach what you practice. And I thought, wow, that's so interesting. So much of the seeker-sensitive model is I've got to go find a need that somebody has and just meet it. Well, that's, you know, I understand some of the sentimentality to that. But in some ways, that can really lower the bar for people. Rather, you, we should be practicing these core values in our lives. If you want your congregation to evangelize, you've got to be evangelizing and talking about it and doing it. If you want your congregation to disciple their kids, you've got to be doing it and giving them practical tools how to do so. That's what I think is different within the church is let's model this. I, you know, I think most Christians really do want to live out their faith, but they don't have the tools. They don't really know how. There's some fear that is there, but churches that make it practical, they make it doable. They show you how to live out your faith at work, how to live out your faith with your neighbors, how to do that. That's effective discipleship. I think the problem in a lot of churches, one problem is sometimes we say, just read your Bible, pray, you know, go to church fellowship, and we leave it there. We don't give people real tools how to live this out. That's what organizations do. They have core values. They don't compromise, but they tell people and show people how to live those out. Yeah. Sean, let me ask you this. You you referred to the seeker-sensitive model, things like that, which I've just got to say, I planted a church 25 years ago, and it was more of a seeker-sensitive model. And trained church planters for a decade. And so I'm sympathetic to the seeker model. However, I have come to believe that the culture is out discipling the church at such a level today that in our churches, we've got to re-examine how we're training people to be disciples. You've mentioned some really practical ways uh, in the context of relationship and modeling. Talk to us a little bit about the importance of really being in Scripture and knowing Scripture, because one of the things that seems to me that we've got to double down on right now in the context of what's happening, at least in North America, is that we've got to really help people to see a biblical worldview and sermons that just encourage us or sermons that just inspire us. And then small groups that uh, are just about talking about uh, people sharing their thoughts, feelings, and desires uh, oftentimes miss really getting into what Scripture says and the transformation of our minds around that that Paul refers to in 2 Corinthians 10. So talk to us about what you're seeing there and any uh, uh, words of wisdom for the church uh, about these things. Uh, like you, Bobby, I've got a lot of sympathy for the seeker-sensitive movement. And my point is not just to pile on it, but I'm going to call my dad again something he taught me. He said, the key is not to meet a felt need, but to make a real need felt. Mm-hmm. The key is not to meet a felt need, but to make a real need felt. What's the real need that we have? A restored relationship with God and forgiveness for our sins. That is our deepest need because we are made to be in a relationship with God. 
made to be in relationship with others. I was speaking at a conference, I don't know, maybe four, actually think about four or five years ago. And uh, there was a pastor, a youth pastor who had left his faith and was coming to the conference. And I was tipped off that he was coming and was willing to consider the evidence my dad and I was laying out. And I said, hey, could we just have lunch together? I'm not going to preach at you or argue, but maybe I could try to help answer some of the questions you're wrestling with. So I have lunch with this former youth pastor, mid-20s from a big church. And we had a wonderful conversation. And he's asking me all these questions. And he started by saying, how come... God is not more present. Why don't I experience God like they seem to in the scriptures? And Bobby, for probably 45 minutes, I'm answering questions, but inside my mind, I'm thinking, gosh, I'm really not helping this guy. These answers are terrible. This is supposed to be my job. And then finally, at the end, he goes, do you have any other advice? And I said, you know, in my experience, whenever I see people leaving their faith, I often ask them, when did you first come to faith? And many people, I'm not convinced, ever really were in the faith. Instead of talking about you leaving, tell me about that moment you knew you were a sinner and you mm. cried out to God for his grace. Bobby, it was like a deer in the headlights. I'll never forget it. He looked at me and he said, Sean, I didn't come to the Christian faith because I was a sinner in need of forgiveness. I was hurting and told that God would make me feel better. Ooh. That is a false gospel. That's what concerns me. When we start saying, we just got to meet felt needs. Jesus will fix your depression. Jesus will fix your relationship. Jesus will do A, B, C, and D. Well, following the Christian faith and Jesus aligns us with reality because it puts us in the true narrative. That Those things, the benefits we get relationally are downstream from experiencing the forgiveness of Christ, being welcomed into the community and the body of Christ, and then being healed through the Holy Spirit. But they're not the reasons why somebody becomes a Christian. So in some ways, what the seeker-sensitive movement has done is said, let's find where people are at in culture and what needs they have. Well, now culture shifts and people are saying things like this affirming narrative about marriage. And some of the early secret sensitive friendly voices are like, well, maybe we need to change some of the message that's in the Bible because this is what people are looking for. This is what they want in a church. And I say, time out. If we're not motivated by what scripture teaches primarily, by what the gospel teaches primarily, then we have compromised the scriptures. So I love the idea of showing how Christian thinking helps us address things like depression. I love how Christian ideas help us address things like loneliness, but we cannot subtly yet powerfully subvert that into the gospel and replace what our deepest needs are. Yeah. That's where we become unhitched from the scriptures. So helping uh, real needs, real spiritual needs for a king and uh, salvation, helping those things to be felt would be really key. Sean, let's, let's uh, uh, if we could move a little deeper into the discipling of the mind. And my contention, and if you would please react to me about it, that the world seems to be out discipling the church right now mm. and what the church can do to out disciple what's happening in the world. 
by the way, let me just say this to set the stage of why I'm saying that. Before he died, Timothy Keller had this great line. He said, the average person today is spending five to seven hours in their social media bubble. By that, he meant Twitter, Facebook, listening to music, maybe watching TV. There, He said, they're spending five to seven hours a day in a social media bubble. There is no way that one hour on Sunday morning is going to counteract the discipling of the world. And um, so I'd like to, for you to react to that, but also if you have any guidance for church leaders. Well, first off, if Timothy Keller said it, that settles it. I believe it. So no, I'm just messing with you. Obviously, there's a lot of wisdom there I just profoundly respect. But the way he and you both frame this, that smartphones and social media are actually discipling this generation is completely correct. There is a discipleship going on in terms of our identities, in terms of what we value, in terms of the narrative we see ourselves about, this consumeristic, individualistic, you know, live out your truth narrative that's being pushed. And the thing that it's such a subtle discipleship that's just drip, 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 drip that adds up five to seven hours a day over a year, five years, 10 years, you literally have been discipled into a different worldview. Yes, yes. Well, the bad news is we have people in church maybe two, three hours a week at best. Yeah, if they're really committed. Since 1972, I believe, this is in Christian Smith's book. He's a sociologist at University of Notre Dame. And he wrote a book called, I think it's called Handing Down the Faith, if I remember correctly. And he said the studies going back to 72. So we're talking like, what is that, 50 years plus? Yeah. Consistently shows that the most influential factor on the next generation are the parents. It's not social media. It's not teachers, it's not the youth pastor, it's not a coach, as important and vital as all of those people are, it's actually the parents. So let me give an example of what I mean by this. Not long ago, I wrote a book with a buddy of mine, former atheist, cold case detective, who became a Christian, analyzing the gospel of Mark through forensic science. And he concluded, holy cow, this is reliable testimony. This story is true. Well, we wrote a book for parents called So the Next Generation Will Know. And when we're working on this, I thought if we come up with some new plan that parents are supposed to do, they'll do it for one or two weeks and then stop and then feel guilty. And it really won't lead to any change. Yeah. So our strategy was, how do we help parents more effectively utilize the opportunities that are already present for kingdom purposes. And of course, this is what we see in Deuteronomy 6.4. Love, Lord God, your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. Talk with your kids about these things when you lie down, when you get up, when you walk along the way, when you sit in the home. So one practical way of doing this is my son is 19. He's a freshman at Biola right now where I teach. But I remember when he was 14, he wanted to see this movie uh, called Bohemian Rhapsody about the rock band Queen. And uh, it was PG-13. I had some issues with it, but the more I read, I was like, okay. I said, buddy, I'll take you and a friend, but when we're done, I just want to know what you think about it and just spend a few minutes talking about it. He goes, sure, dad. So we go to the movie, we come back, we sit down in our kitchen table, which is right across the way here. And for probably 20 or 30 minutes, I just said, hey, buddy, what'd you think? Did anything surprise you in the movie? What was your favorite scene? I said, as Christians, are there anything in this movie that we can agree with and celebrate? 
Are there any things in this movie that we should take pause with? Are there any times you felt you were being preached at in this movie? And in the context of relationship, we just talked about that film and a kind of discipleship was taking place. I had these conversations with my kids consistently. So to wrap up your question, not the only thing, but one of the most important things we can do to compete with this culture that five to seven hours a day is discipling our kids is to equip parents with practical ways amidst their busyness to just pass on their faith and engage their kids. Practical things that really help. Now, here's in sum what this research basically shows. There's no formula that guarantees success in discipling your kids, right? I mean, even Jesus was 11 out of 12. Judas didn't fall along <laughs> with Jesus. So obviously this is not going to happen for all of us. And, and here's what I think it would show. Number one, if we want to pass on their faith, we have to model it first. And this is true for pastors, this is true for parents. If we're not living a faith that's not compelling, then it doesn't matter what we say. Second, build close, intimate relationships with our kids. Be involved in their lives. And third, have meaningful spiritual conversations through the rhythm of life. We model it, build relationship, and intentionally engage our kids with conversations. Number one, it's biblical. And number two, it gives us the best chance to resist the discipleship that's coming from the culture in which we live, and especially, like you said, through social media. Yeah, that's good. I would say as a senior pastor of a church, what you just described for parents and their kids, we actually seek that for everybody in the church. Awesome. That be in relationship with somebody discipling them, who's living it out, who's modeling it. I think I told you, Sean, as we began, I was discipled at the University of Calgary, and I really valued, it was my French professor, really valued what he taught me about scripture, but what I valued even more is how he lived it out and how Amen. he loved me and how he cared about me and he guided me. And the idea of what you've just described, actually, Paul uses this language in uh, 1 Thessalonians, how that he was, he actually says he was like a mother to the Thessalonians. It's this idea of spiritual parenting and discipling. Amen. Well, Sean, I, I just really appreciate you. Uh, thank you. Really look forward to you being with us in May in Indianapolis. And I'm going to give you the last word as we uh, close our time together. Oh, gosh, I just say thanks for having me on. I'm looking forward to being together in May. This is a treat. I uh, love what you're doing at discipleship.org and uh, honored to partner with you. Uh, thank you. Make sure to check out the show notes on this episode before you move on to get some useful resources on disciple-making culture. If you want to hear more from Sean McDowell, please come join us this May 2024 for the Disciple Making Forum. There's a link in the show notes as well, or you can go to discipleship.org to buy your tickets. Up next, we're going to be interviewing the one and the only Anthony Walker. We interviewed him at the very end of last year. He co-hosts the podcast Scripture in Black and White with our point leader, Bobby Harrington. So make sure you hit subscribe 
and come back and listen to that next episode. When I drop it, they're going to be talking about the habits and the discipline that you need to create a disciple-making culture. All right, y'all. Thanks so much for listening, and I look forward to seeing you on the next episode. We'll see you.